right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, New Village Church. I have to say I've, um, I, I've, I've admired this church from afar over the years, and um, a good brother and a former co-worker, Pete Jansen, I know was connected with this church over the years as well, and so it's a pleasure to be here to bring the Word of God. As uh, Paul mentioned, I'm Joe Garofalo. I serve as the pastor of outreach and discipleship for Island Christian Church. I've been in that position for about 13 years. Prior to that, I was in uh, uh, publishing. I had my own publishing company uh, that was actually sold to Newsday. Uh, and so that was kind of a little bit of an exit strategy to get me into the ministry, and that happened in 2008. So with that said, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the Word of God. Well, Father, thank you for this time together that we can come and gather in your name, Lord, as we sit under the teaching of the Word. And Father, may it be clear to us, uh, Lord, May we have ears to hear and eyes to see uh, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, I remember reading this great book uh, called How People Grow. Uh, it's by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And popular Christian authors, they wrote the Boundary Series. Some of you may be familiar with that. Um, they are most well-known as leading Christian counselors. Uh, with speaking engagements all over the world. They, they opened uh, several mental health clinics. Uh, so just a tremendous impact in, the f in their field and for the kingdom of God. And so I, I read of an early experience uh, from Dr. Cloud. It was his first day on the job at a Christian psychiatric hospital. This was kind of his dream job. Uh, and uh, it was finally happening. He had been through college and seminary. He worked hard for years and years. And so finally, he was ready to put all his knowledge and practice into, into good work here. So he arrives at this hospital. He goes to this nursing station. And he observes you know, the hustle and bustle of this busy psychiatric unit in this Dallas hospital. He sees nurses you know, conferring with patients and doctors conferring with one another and with patients. He sees people take, you know, getting their vital signs taken. So just all this, all this happening, and he's so excited. He's, he's kind of ready to change the world for the Lord. And so he can't wait to proclaim God's love to all these people. And so he looks down the hall, and he sees a woman in a pink bathrobe walk out of a room, and she, as she extends her arms outward and exclaims, I am Mary, Mother of God. So it was at that point where he said to himself, you know, this is going to be harder than I think. This is going to be a lot harder than I thought. He says that was a thought that would come to him many times over the years. You know, the wake-up call for him was that this is going to require some work. This is not going to be easy. This is, going to, this is not just going to fall into my lap. So how many of you have thought about something like that, where, you know, something actually looked, you know, easier than it actually was, Right? Maybe it was a, a new job. Maybe it was a relationship. Uh, taking on a project. I know I'd recently decided, like over Thanksgiving um, weekend a couple of years ago, that I was going to hang some molding. I said, ah, I'll, you know, I can do it. I'm, I'm off on the day after Thanksgiving, Friday. I'll just do that. You know, meanwhile, Monday, I'm looking at my watch, and I'm still, like, doing it. It was just like, man, I bit off a little more than I can chew, right? And so I think most of us kind of have that, you know, have, have experienced that, you know, even getting in shape, right? Ah, you know, I'll join a gym. Well, you know, it takes people a little bit to realize that actually joining a gym doesn't do it for you. You actually got to go, right? 
So that was something I, I kind of found out. And, you know, this is also true in our relationship with God uh, for the purpose of knowing him, obeying him, and becoming more like him. You see, becoming what God wants us to be requires work. Everything we have, actually. In fact, Paul said to his son in the faith, uh, Timothy, uh, train yourself for godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. I like the New American Standard uh, version. It says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, the Greek word for discipline is gymnasia, from where we get the words gymnasium and gymnastics, right? And so what do you do in the gym? Well, you move, you sweat, you work, right? Kind of exertion. In fact, if you ever saw a photo of somebody who is, um, you know, think about the Olympics, uh, you know, that was the fastest man in the world, Usain Bolt, I guess his name is, right? You know, when he's like lunging for the finish line, right? You know, you see this guy, he's just like sweat pouring out of every pore, you know, veins popping out of his face. He's just like this, you know. So you think about, that's some exertion, right? So, you know, the famous expression, no pain, no what? You guys know, right? So if your Christian life is kind of like in neutral, right, you're st- and if you're kind of feeling stuck, you know, first of all, you're not alone, but something has to change. You know, unlike real life, there's no such thing as treading water. You're either swimming or sinking. In the Christian life, you're either swimming or sinking. Somebody once said about the Christian life, if you're standing still, you're falling back. And so, like Dr. Cloud realized, this is going to be harder than I thought. It's going to require work. So a couple of questions uh, I'd like you folks to ponder. The first is this. Are you working at pursuing the Lord? And the second question, if not, what are you pursuing? Hebrews 12, 14, strive, which means toil or struggle, for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The thing is this, though. It is the Lord who qualifies us. We're not qualified by doing these things. I want to make that clear. Uh, As as a dear friend in the the Lord has, has reminded me many times, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called, right? And so that's an important point because we work hard, but our hard work is not the cause of our righteous standing with God. It's the result of it. You know, we can never be good enough. We can never produce enough righteousness to impress God and gain admittance admittance into heaven. That was won for us only by the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross for all who believe. So nothing we, we can ever do will make us more acceptable to God. That was already settled for those who received him. Now, when we're saved by the blood of Christ, we receive God's full pardon for sin, and the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. Amen? Amen. Uh, and the, and the, that, the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's that, it's, it's that presence that causes us to hunger and want to pursue God, to pray, to read his word, to be obedient to it, etc., The practice of the spiritual disciplines, which is the first thing I led off with about disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Disciplines, we Christians need to do the disciplines. But we're also told to work out our own salvation 
right, with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. Now that verse tells us that while our salvation is a settled thing, our growth, meaning sanctification, is a process, right? And we continue in this process as we pursue loving God and loving others, the greatest commandment. But are we really doing these things? Are we exhibiting true faith? Are we putting our money where our mouths are? We need to ask ourselves that question to test ourselves, to test our faith. We just can't make that, I, you know, yeah, I'm doing everything I need to do. In fact, it's kind of a dangerous thing if you're saying, I'm doing everything I need to do. Okay? It's that's when you're feeling like you've arrived, that's, that's when you're really in trouble. Even the Apostle Paul said that in Philippians. He says, not that I've attained or arrived. You know, and here's the man who wrote half the New Testament. And so it's a word to us. So we need to ask ourselves that question to test ourselves. Now, I'm gonna be, uh, we're going to be reading uh, some passages uh, in the book of James, uh, the first chapter, if you guys want to turn to it at this time. Now, the book of James is an epistle that helps us to do that very thing, to test ourselves. It was addressed to uh, Jewish Christians who were under heavy uh, persecution, uh, but it has some very practical emphasis. In fact, it stresses more practical than theological knowledge. It, it stresses godly behavior, especially under those conditions of, of suffering and persecution. In fact, one of the takeaway statements from this epistle and from my message this morning is this. The essence of true faith, or true religion, as it were, is bound up in the way we behave. And I'll say it another way. Saving faith, listen to this, just a quick thing to remember. Saving faith is a working faith. It was James's epistle which made famous the statement, faith without works is what? Dead, right. But remember, our behavior is not the cause of our salvation, but the result of it. So now there are three ways I want to show you as, as to how our faith or religion is tested or proven from this awesome epistle. So the first I want to share is this, in response to trials and, tem and temptations. In response to trials and temptations. In fact, James' epistle even begins uh, that very thing. In fact, we're going to read uh, just uh, verses 2 through 4 in, in James chapter 1 here. It says, So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let not steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, the Lord wants, us, wants to use hard things to get us moving. But look what it produces, steadfastness, meaning through tests a Christian will learn to withstand the pressure of a trial until God makes a way out or causes relief. Right? I'll say that again. A Christian will learn to withstand the pressure of a trial until God makes a way out or causes, <coughs> excuse me, relief. But, and there's blessing. Just skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, better translated, the crown that is life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know, so this then speaks of, not only of a future reward, but blessing in this life. In fact, the prize we win is character. 
Suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, right? Romans 5. So testing of your faith is like saying, I'm proving it. Also note, uh, verse 4, it says that you may be perfected and complete, lacking nothing. Now, we're not talking sinless perfection here, but spiritual maturity. So I've heard this kind of a good application, if you will, for spiritual, spiritual maturity. It's, it's we become mature and whole when we no longer crave what God sees fit to withhold. Think about that for a second. And we all know, Lord knows, God can withhold some things, right? But in the end, it's, it's always for our benefit. We usually don't see it <laughs> at the time. I always say that our hindsight is like God's foresight, right? So this testing of faith is designed to drive believers into a deeper commun- communion and a greater trust in Christ. Hey, no one likes suffering. No one grows into maturity who does not understand suffering firsthand. And no one knew that better than the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So number two, another way of our faith is proven is in response to God's word. So we have in response to our trials and temptations, and now we have in response to God's word. So drop down, if you will, to James, uh, uh, staying in James 1, chapters, uh, rather, verses 22 to 25. It says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he, what he was like. But but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, how a person responds to God's word is certainly evidence of a saving and an active faith. You know, your lifestyle really tells you a lot about, tells a lot about your faith, uh, and obedience to the word of God is kind of the basic mark of the new birth in Christ, quite frankly. And again, we're not talking sinless perfection. We're not going to be perfect, and we're still going to sin. But instead of pursuing sinful behavior, sin is what we should hate. Sin is what we should hate. The Holy Spirit in us prompts us, turns us towards righteousness. We just have to yield to the Holy Spirit. Although sin will occasionally get the better of us. Doers not hear is only deceiving ourselves. I love that. That means if all you do is hear God's word and it never changes your life, you're deceived. Verses 23 and 24 gives, a, gives an analogy of that. I'll, I'll read it again. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You know, let's say you're at a dinner party and you're really, like, loving the spinach dip, right? And so, you know, you excuse yourself, you go to the restroom, and so, you know, there you are, you look in the mirror, and to your horror, there's this big hunk and piece of spinach, right? Right between your teeth there, right? And so then you say, oh, look at that, and forget to do anything about it and kind of walk away, no change. 
there's people who read the word and walk away. No change. It's that mindset that keeps people stuck. It's called inertia. Being a doer means taking in the word and acting on it. That means staying there and lingering as you read until the word firmly pressed into your heart as to evoke action. Plus, verse 25 says, you will be blessed if you do so, if you act. He calls it the law of liberty, another way of referring to the word of God and its redemptive power. If you allow the word of God to sink into your heart and you obey it, you observe it, you interpret, and you apply, right? Three rules of Bible study. God's truth sets us free. So now just a quick mention, verse 26, James refers to the dangers of going through the motions. In other words, of doing things just for show, you know, with the, with the wrong intentions. So he uses the tongue and the need to bridle it, meaning controlling or keeping a tight rein on it, right? Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. Why? Because we know that the tongue is an indicator of the heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12. You know, Jesus made that statement after calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers. How could you speak good when you're evil, you hypocrites? Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So if anyone thinks he's religious without that inner control, it reveals that religion is worthless. But many don't realize it. They're deceived, right? Incidentally, I've been using the term religion quite a bit this morning. I, I grew up Catholic, and so when I came to faith in Christ, I kind of shunned the word religion, which essentially means an organized system of beliefs, ceremonies, and rules used to worship a god or a group of gods. In fact, and I, again, my Catholic upbringing taught me Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so I give a lot to the Catholic upbringing. I know at our church at, uh, at Island Christian, probably 60% of our congregation are former Catholics. Uh, and it helps that one of the pastors, myself, is a former Catholic, and, and as is my wife, it really helps us to relate to the fact that, you know, we've been there, we understand, you know, there's a lot of good that came out of that upbringing, but it, 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 it kind of turns away a little bit from the scriptures, but that's for another day. <coughs> in fact, the word religion, by the way, is found only five times in the entire New Testament, and the word religious only twice. But it's good to use this word in this instance because it, it contrasts man-made efforts to get to, to get to God through ritual and routine. With, and it contrasts that with real saving faith, which leads to a third demonstration of true religion. So we, we prove our faith in response to trials and testing. We prove our faith in response to into uh, God's word and we prove our faith in response to need, in response to need, our hearts for God and for others. The greatest commandment, again, according to Jesus, is to love God and love others. But you know, that does not, what I just said, does not do justice to that statement. 
In fact, Jesus said it this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, he said. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. That's everything right there. You know, it's not what you do on the outside, it's what comes out of your heart, right, as we said. True faith or true religion is tested or proven, demonstrated, in other words, by good works. This is the purest kind of worship, the purest kind of religion. You see, the genuineness of anybody's religion is not determined by their own opinion. You know, I'm doing it okay. I'm doing right here. You know, I'm living okay. I'm getting by. I haven't killed anybody lately, so I'm doing okay. Right? That's not it. It's not your own opinion. It's the opinion of God. A person may think himself to be religious, but he's not the one who makes that decision, quite frankly. You know? It's not... You don't make yourself what you are by thinking that's what you are kind of thing. It's a demonstration. God says your faith is real when your life is marked by obedience and marked by love. That's what it is. And here it is, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So why did James single out widows and orphans? because they're usually the, uh, the ones that are unable to reciprocate, right? Caring for them demonstrates true, sacrificial Christian love. And God has always been concerned with the fatherless and with widows. Exodus 22:22. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows. You know, God has a special heart for people who have a great need, and widows and orphans fall into that category. Listen, true religion is also made manifest by how we love people who are in need, not just how we love and how we help people that we like. Big difference. It's a question of biblical love, which goes way beyond the people that you're attracted to. It's the difference between human love and divine love, right? Divine love speaks of the character of love itself. Human love is kind of flippant if, if, it's, you know, if it's just up to us, quite frankly. A surefire way, uh, fire way of testing yourself is this. Am I loving those God loves? Am I allowing myself to be used by God to care for those he cares for? Does my behavior demonstrate the love of God in me? Does it burden my heart that there are folks that are depraved and deprived? Does it burden my heart to the point where I rush in to meet those needs? You know, there are times when you don't do that, but then you kind of feel bad, and that's, that's okay. That's okay. That's a, kind of an indication of a transformed life, of what true religion is. Again, verse 27 religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself, oneself unstained from the world. Okay, pure and undefiled. Let's look at that in a second. Pure and undefiled. I was reading this book um, whose theme was actually Good Theology is Public Theology by a guy named Kelly Capel. And he said this about, this about that verse. What I always found startling about that statement is it puts caring for those in need with the call to be unstained from the world. For in truth, we in the church sometimes seek to be unstained by distancing ourselves from those most troubled in society, those in most need. You get that? He goes on to say, connecting ourselves to the vulnerable, the oppressed, the damaged, and the suffering will connect us with their pain and their trouble. And that is exactly, exactly what Jesus did. He went to the outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the undesirables, even at the expense of his own reputation, right? But listen, we're kept unstained by the world as we follow Christ by our words and deeds into the pain of the world. That's the whole point. As we do this, it will be messy and dirty. It will no doubt bring us pain and tears and sacrifice. But So this, here's the paradox, which just got to get your minds around for a second. Unless we get involved in the messiness and brokenness of others, we risk becoming stained by the world we seek to avoid. You hear that? Here it is, people thinking, I'm not going to go there, you know, I can't get my hands dirty, you know, too big for that or whatever. But the idea, unless you get into it, unless you dig your hands into the mess of other people, that's what's going to make you stained. How do you be unstained? By digging in the dirt. That's the Christian life. That's how it works. That's how we respond. In other words, we respond to God's call to purity not by ignoring or retreating from sin and suffering of this world, but by confronting it and loving and providing for those who suffer as agents, agents of God's love and grace. That is our call. That's why the Apostle James put that in the epistle. That's, why, that's how he ended the first chapter talking about how we respond. How do we test our faith? How do we prove our faith? How do we, respo how do we respond to when everything is not going so good? Because, quite frankly, when things are going good, that's great. Hey, what's not to love? It's all good. But it's when it's not going good, how do we respond to that? Do we, do we cause that to, to help us to go deeper? And what do we do with the Word of God? Do we just read and go, good deal? That works for some. I'll try to make it apply to me. No. We're doers of the word. And then how do we respond to need? That's what the apostle was talking about when he said true religion. That's what he meant by true religion. One more passage, and, and then I'm wrapped up here. Psalm 113. Turn to it if you like. I'll, I'll just read it. Psalm 113. The Lord is high above the all nations, 
and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. You know, here's a picture of our Lord as he bends from heaven, right? No truer than when Jesus became man. I read this somewhere. He was born like us so we could become like him. So the essence of our faith, of our true faith, of true religion, is bound up in, in the way we behave. That's an exclamation point to the, to the entire epistle. You know, and as we close, I have three kind of takeaway questions, if you will, for you to ask yourselves. We all need to ask. So how do I respond under trials and temptations? Do they cause me to go deeper? How do I respond to God's word? Does it call me to action? How do I respond to need? Is it based on love of God and others? You know, and not just my own convenience, right? Tough questions, but they're what God wants us to know and do. But remember, it's God who qualifies us, if you will. It's God who enables us to do this. That's the beauty of this. As we yield to the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to have these desires in the first place, to want to be about the Word, to want to grow deeper. In the Bible study uh, this morning that Karen and I sat in, uh, the study was in Psalm 42. And we were talking about, you know, the things that cause us to go deeper. As As the deer pants for the water, so my soul hungers and thirsts and pants for thee. You know, it's those dry times that we go deeper, that cause us to go deeper to the glory of God. So it is God who qualifies us, who enables us to do it. Because I want to say this, this is all going to be harder than we thought. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I thank you for your word this morning and and just all that it, that it provides in helping us to keep in step with your desire for us. Thank you for enabling us to live lives pleasing to you and that our actions are the result of our salvation calling and not the cause of it. And for those who aren't sure or for those that are maybe looking to tread water here, may they first powerfully sense their utter need of you, the desire to go deeper, that they would open up their hearts and say, Lord, send me. Lord, thank you for all you give us. Thank you that you forgave us of our sins and that you cause us to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ and God forgave us. Father, fill us with your fullness and for the great kingdom work that you have for us, for your glory. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.